The reason we're in Ephesians chapter 5, and I don't know how many words I've got left in my word tank, um, but over the last couple of weeks, I've had the opportunity to invest in students, athletes, and student leadership, calling them to recognize the essential ingredients to become what the university and seminary are in the business of promoting and producing. And that is that we want our students to be educated and equipped to be gospel promoters, gospel ambassadors. We want them to be God glorifiers in everything they do, whether they eat or drink, whether they uh, open a business or teach a class, whether they're a fireman, a policeman, a pastor, whatever it is they do, like what you do. Everything they do is to be a stage of worship upon which they bring glory to God and they promote the gospel of God. And my charge and passion is to challenge them as to what that requires. And I'm arguing that everything we do needs to be done both biblically and practically as an act of worship. We're to present ourselves, Romans 12 says, and present as a formal presentation. It's a resolution that's practically expressed on a daily basis that says, God, because of what you've done for me, because of the abundant undeserved mercies, because of the unmerited favor that you have displayed towards me, I want to respond and present myself today and tomorrow, throughout this day, as a living sacrifice, which is a worship act, a sacrifice that brings pleasure to you like a fragrant aroma. I'm offering me to you. You've purchased me, and I'm offering me to you to the end that you are worshiped and that you are honored, that people see you for who you are, and they understand what the gospel does because they see its fruit lived out in my life. And as I've been talking to the young men and women I have the privilege of serving and serving with, I thought this morning I would challenge you in a way that I have recently challenged them And that is to recognize the necessity in order to worship God and rightly represent God, in order to promote the gospel that saves, the necessity of displaying biblical integrity. With the recent revelations of high-profile Christian leaders who have been publicly one thing and privately another thing, calling into question the credibility of the good news that, and the truth that they proclaimed and professed and communicated, standing up and representing the Word of God and the person of God and that living a life privately that contradicted those claims. And I, like you, I'm sure, have talked to many who have been troubled by and impacted negatively by those revelations. 
And I bet if I went row to row and person to person and said to you, has there been someone in your spiritual journey who made public claims, who represented themselves as a Christian, as a spokesman for the Word of God and the person of God, if I went door, person to person, row to row, and ask, have you had the experience of having someone reveal the fact that they weren't what they claimed to be, that they, by their testimony and the lack of personal integrity, undermine the veracity, the legitimacy, the reality of the person of God and the claims of the gospel. I had a personal friend uh, growing up, really my best buddy. We went to church together. Our families were close and intimate friends. And he was a couple of years younger than I was, but he played sports like I did. We had a love and affection for camping. And so pretty much every other week, we'd load up in one of our vehicles and head somewhere to pitch a tent and build a fire and roast hot dogs and tell stories and enjoy the stars in the sky. We were friends. He was not a Christian. I was a Christian. He had not embraced or accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ until he turned 17. And then he called me and uh, shared the good news with me that he had finally, finally confessed Christ. He had declared himself a follower of Jesus Christ and trusted himself to the good news that saves and this is the truth. I lived 10 miles from his home. I got in my car to drive to his home to celebrate that newfound faith, that transformation of life, to celebrate because he was a burden to me in terms of his spiritual condition, recognizing, and I grew up with this understanding, that the wages of sin is death, and it's not just physical death, it's eternal death. I knew that absent Christ, there's an eternal consequence, separation from God, eternal torment in hell. I knew that unless he was saved, he would be lost. And I loved him, and he was my friend, and we shared much of life together, and he had finally, had finally come to faith. So I got in my family station wagon, which had become my vehicle, and I drove to Pittman, New Jersey, 10 miles north of where I lived, and I rolled up to his house, and I uh, opened the car door, and he met me at the front of his house. He had tears coming down his face. He was incredibly frustrated, expressed a good bit of emotion, and really anger. Between the time that I had left to travel to celebrate his newfound faith, he had learned that his father, who was a leader in our local church, had been involved immorally with a friend of his family. And what he said to me in the front yard between the tears and the frustration was, and I'll never forget this, 
if this is what Christianity is. And if this is what Christians do, I want no part of it. I'm 62 years old. The impact of that broken trust, that violation of integrity, bears that fruit all the way till today. Now, I am not arguing that his father can prevent or somehow insulate him from personal responsibility. What I am saying is what could have been was impacted by a violation of biblical integrity. And our Shepherds Conference is reclaiming evangelicalism, and what I want to challenge you with today is to reclaim biblical integrity. Because there is a distance between what we say and what we live in our culture, and that distance is growing. Integrity is essential for an act of worship, and integrity is essential for promoting and validating the gospel that saves. You cannot say one thing and do another thing and not injure the testimony of God and call into question the gospel of God. And what I want to challenge you to do today is to re-up on your resolve to be biblical and to be integrous with regard to your representation of who God is and what the gospel does. Biblical integrity is a necessity. Listen, we all fall down, but the pattern and priority of our life needs to be that we maintain a consistency between the outside and the inside, the inside and the outside. The necessity of integrity. Here's my subtitle. For the honor of God and rightly representing the gospel of God. Biblical integrity is a necessity to rightly represent God and to rightly represent the gospel of God. Listen, one of the good things about our culture and all of its darkness is every light shines brighter if it's illuminated by integrous truth. Biblically expressing what true Christianity is. And the absence of integrity misrepresents God, it misrepresents what God has done, and it misrepresents what we truly are. Let me give you my proposition. A proposition is the promotional priority of this biblical exhortation. In order to glorify God, to promote and represent the gospel of God, and to influence and impact the world to advance the kingdom of God, Christians must possess and display integrity. 
in order to glorify God, promote and represent the gospel of God, and influence and impact the world to advance the kingdom of God, Christians must dispossess and display integrity. So this is a call to you today. This is an encouragement to you today to both understand and resolve and do what it takes to rightly represent God to the end that the world who needs the good news sees an expression that represents the God and a God of heaven and the good news that he gifts us in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. So that's why we're in Ephesians chapter 5, in order to promote the characteristics of biblical integrity. Therefore, Paul writes chapter 5, and look up for a minute, I should give you a little background. Ephesians is written from prison. Paul is writing to Ephesus the heart of immorality and the heart of pagan worship. Ephesus is a dominant city on the coastline of Asia Minor. And to the recently birthed church, couched and tucked into a carnal culture, a dark culture, a sexualized culture, a pagan culture, an idolatrous culture, a materialistic culture. Paul writes to believers communicating to them their rich treasure and identity in the person of Jesus Christ because of the grace of God unmerited. The you can't believe what God has done for you by his amazing grace, Revelation chapters 1 through 3 what he did before the foundation of the world, what he did when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, what he did when you deserved nothing, what he did simply because he wanted to, the treasure of what God has done by grace through Jesus Christ, not earned, not merited, not because you're good enough, but because God loved enough. And, verse chapters 4 through 6, The consequence of that amazing grace ought to display itself in real time, in real life, as a consequence of his goodness to you in the way you think and live and love. Chapter 5 digs into the issues of integrity, the characteristics that must be present, commonsensically present in everyone who bears the name of Christ, everyone who's received the grace of Christ, everyone who has been commissioned to represent the glory of God in Christ, everyone who is to be a part of a community like this that is to bring attention to, honor to, and an awareness of the God of grace, the sovereign king of everything, the creator of all that is, to everyone who belongs to him, commissioned by him, this is the way you should live. It's essential. It's commonsensical. It is non-negotiable. 
So when you read the words, therefore, at the beginning of chapter 5, it is connecting to all of the work of God's amazing grace generally, and specifically to the heart of that grace, which is your gospel transformation. Verse 32 of chapter 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, those are main verbs. How, participle, by forgiving each other, here it is, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. You are the supernatural recipient of God's amazing forgiving grace. Therefore, chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. Because of what he's done for you. Because he's forgiven and loved you, you are to live out the reality of what you've received. Let's talk integrity for a minute as we work our way through this passage. By definition, the word integrity means wholeness, completeness, soundness, undivided. From the inside out, it's whole like integer, which is a mathematical term. It's a whole number. There are no fractions. It's solid. It's complete. It's sound. When one of those massive oak tree limbs in in the uh, little community I live in, and I have six of them surrounding my home, when one of those massive tree limbs fell on top of my home, When I got permission to finish cutting it from the community of Santa Clarita, where you have to have permission to do anything to an oak like their children, once I got permission, I had an arborist come out, and they took that tree limb down. What was a massive limb, which looked healthy, it had leaves on it, but when they cut it, do you know what was true about it? The inside was hollow. What was this big was empty in the center. It lacked, listen to me, integrity. It wasn't solid. It looked solid. It looked healthy. It just wasn't healthy. And ultimately, with the right conditions and the right stresses... It demonstrated its lack of integrity. Because integrity means you are solid, complete, and sound, undivided. No fractions. Not hollow at the core, solid at the core. And the core and the outside match, which leads me to not to the general definition of integrity, but the ethical one. The ethical definition of integrity because you can have a structurally sound building or foundation or tree limb. But there's an ethical application to integrity. It means moral soundness, consistency of values and actions. The outside matches the inside. The Corinthian church lacked integrity because it was something on the inside. Paul said they were saints. 
but their behavior didn't model their condition or position in Christ. They lacked integrity. And then you had the Pharisees on the other side who lacked integrity because they had nothing on the inside. They were like whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. They had the behavior. You remember the Pharisees, 6,000 of them. They were zealots for the law. They were the holiest of holy. They were the righteous of the righteous. They were just hollow. They were legalistic. They were self-righteous. They were not solid. Ethically, moral soundness says the outside matches the inside, and the inside matches the outside. What's happening today is you have Corinthian-like Christians who are changed on the inside but are not living out that reality on the outside. You know what that is? That's confusing and disappointing. It's disappointing and damaging to the message of the gospel and to the person of Jesus Christ. And then you have the Pharisee Pharisee kind of Christianity that is hollow on the inside. And I'm going to argue that's not disappointing and damaging. That's disgusting and destroying. Both are consequential and impactful because both misrepresent the gospel and the God of the gospel. One, because they're fakers. The others, because they're beginners and spiritual teenagers. They're not mature. One's hypocrisy, one's immaturity. Both are destructive. Verse 1, therefore, because you've enjoyed the forgiveness of God, because you've been loved and forgiven by God, Be imitators of God as beloved children. You're in his family. Act like you're in his family. I tell my children, I've said this to them since they were young, you're a walls, walls is share. Act like a walls. This is what we do. If you're in this family, this is what we do. If you're a Christian, this is God's way of saying, this is what we do. Act like it. Imitate God. Live up to the name on your life in uniform. Live up to your testimony and claim that you're a Christian. Live up to the fact that you've been forgiven and you've been loved by your Father. Therefore, Imitate him, verse 2, watch this, and I'm going to call this relational integrity. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. When Jesus Christ offered himself out of love for you, That was a worship act that brought pleasure to the heart of God. When the sacrifices were laid on the altar and they were consumed by the fire, when that aroma lifted itself to heaven, 
the king of heaven to whom that worship sacrifice was offered received that with pleasure. And when Jesus selflessly gave himself out of love for others, he brought pleasure to the heart of God in that sacrifice. We are to be imitators of what we have seen in him that has pleased God, and we need to be expressors of what we've received from God. Spiritual integrity, biblical integrity, means I am an imitator of God, the one who gave and loved me, and therefore I am offering a worship offering to God in like manner that is selflessly, listen to this, loving. If I have integrity, I am the recipient of selfless love. If I am a worshiper, I am to model the one who worshiped ultimately through selfless love. I am to be a selfless lover if I have integrity. It's not right for me to be the recipient and the one who claims I've received forgiveness and grace and not display forgiveness and grace. It's incongruous. It lacks integrity. I can't have it and not show it. And if I don't show it, I may not have it. Biblical integrity means I'm going to honor God by honoring Him with giving others what was given to me. Selfless, sacrificial love. Grace Community Church, Cornerstone. Christianity requires, by way of integrity, that I will display selfless loving because I have been the recipient of selfless love. What the world and the culture desperately needs to properly understand God is not, I'm mad at the culture, Christians, but I'm loving selflessly a culture that needs the gospel that delivers and saves. I hate what's going on in our country. It frustrates me to see the lack of leadership, courage, and conviction. I don't believe for a minute the narrative that is being promoted as truthful. But the culture is not helped if what I do in this culture is not primarily defined by what the culture needs to see in me as a Christian, not first as a citizen, but as a Christian. Because what they need is a representation of not a political form of Christianity, but a biblical representation of Christianity. You can't be mad at the culture for acting like a lost culture. You can't be mad at leaders who lie. You can be disappointed. You can be sad. You can be grieved. But you must display a selfless Christian love 
that considers the needs of others as more important than yourself. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. What were we when he laid down his life for us? Antagonistic adversarial enemies. That's what we were. And what did he do? He did what was necessary for us to serve and invest in our future and in our eternity. He sacrificed so that we could become what otherwise we wouldn't be. Listen, I want the Christian community to know that biblical Christianity acts like Jesus acted toward us. And because he did that for us, we ought to do that for one another, and we ought to do that for others. Can you say amen to that? Gracious, loving, selfless, sacrificial. What can I do for you? Not because you deserve it, but because you need it. That's relational integrity. Selfless loving. Verse 3, moral integrity. Do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. What is a saint? A saint is a set-apart by God for God person. Because of the gospel of God, I've been set apart for the glory of God to represent God. I am a hagias person. I'm a holy person, not because I am necessarily living perfectly. I've been set apart to represent God's nature, God's holiness in a world that is unholy. I am a saint by calling. I am a saint by position, and I need to live out that reality. And when I live impurely, when I live immorally, when I live uncleanly, I misrepresent who God is and who people ought to be who know God and have experienced the gospel of God. This is moral integrity. Do not let immorality, you know this word, pornea. Pornea is the big word for general immorality. It's not Bill Clinton immorality. It's not narrow to an act. It is broad. Anything sexually inappropriate outside of marriage is immoral. Whether you're watching it or whether you're doing it or anything in between. The marriage bed is undefiled. The covenant of marriage is the place where intimacy can be experienced rightly. And any place else, it's immoral. It's pornea. That should not be a part of the testimony of any Christian. It's not proper. It's not consistent. Uncleanness is the word clean, pure. It's the word catharsis, something clean with a big X over it. You're behaving in a way that is unclean. It's dirty. The word unclean is a broad term also. It's attached to the context to worldly passions, actions, affections. Here it's attached to immoral actions and greedy appetites. Biblically, it's attached to evil desires and greed, lawlessness. Impure means it's mixed, it's muddied. 
a Christian ought to commit themselves to moral integrity. Why? So that I'm clean. Be like a surgeon showing up to work on you covered in mud. You don't want that surgeon working on you. He's not qualified. He's disqualified. He needs to wash up and change clothes. Christians are not qualified. It's not proper among saints to be muddied by the dirt of moral immorality, moral failure, or material greed. Because that's what the next word attached to it. This is like the bridge between both. Two things can make you unclean. The God of the flesh, the sexual perversions and passions, and the God of the world, the material positions and possessions that you think will provide for life and satisfaction. Listen, just, uh, just a clarity on Ephesus when Paul wrote this. It was one of the most immoral cities in the world. Why? Because worship was attached, pagan worship, to immoral actions. Cicero, a uh, Roman historian, talked about this part of the world at that time, in particular this city, and said that this city made it not only legal and acceptable, but desirable for young people to have immoral relationships as an act of worship paid which promoted the temple of Aphrodite. You do not deny a young person pornea for the purposes of worship at cost. And you don't deny any man a mistress. That was acceptable. That's what you had. That's what you did. And into that world, that dark world of immoral current and culture comes the Words inspired by God through the Apostle Paul, that's not consistent with who you are. You can't live like the world. You can't do what the world does. You're a Christian. That's not proper among saints. Don't look at that. Don't do that. Don't live as if the material possessions are satisfaction for your soul. Don't act like your life revolves around the stuff you acquire, the place you live, the office you occupy, the people who know your name. The word greed is insatiable appetite for more. That's the heart of it. I never have enough. I live here, but I want to live there. I drive this, but I'd rather drive that. I have this job, but I need that job. I have this amount of money, but I need more money. I'm never happy. And that's not integrous morally as a Christian. It's not proper. Why is it not proper? Because satisfaction is in the person of Jesus Christ and in the gifts of God that he gives to those who know him. That's where satisfaction is. That's where true life is. A man's life does not consist of the things he possesses. His life consists in the things that matter, his relationship with God. It's not in liaisons, virtual or, or personal. It's in a connection with God that honors God. And the place that God has given as a true place of satisfaction is in the person of his son and in the context of covenant marriage. Own it, live it, do it. And if you failed at it, confess it. 
I mean, don't hear this as a condemnation. Hear this as a challenge to say, if this is not my conviction and commitment, I need to re-up on it. And if I'm out of bounds, I need to recalibrate. If I'm soft on this, if I'm immature on this, if I'm hollow on the inside, I'm going to address it. I'm going to confess it. If First John says, he who says he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If I'm messed up and I'm not lined up, I can confess that so God can straighten me up. Salvation is by grace, not Harry's merit, not to get in and not to stay in. But having become a Christian, I ought to live like a Christian. Because God is dishonored if I don't, and the gospel's misrepresented if I don't. Moral integrity. Number three. Verbal integrity. And there must be no filthiness. I don't know how your Bible translates filthiness, but it's general obscenity. The synonym in our culture would be no cussing. There are cussing pastors and there are cussing Christians. There shouldn't be any of that. There should be no general obscenity in the body of Christ. You know why? Because we ought to talk nobly. We ought to live purely, and we ought to talk nobly. No filthiness, no silly talk. That's logia, moro-logia, moron, the speech of morons. Logia is the word for words. No foolish speech, no dumb talk. I, I can't say in the pulpit the title of some of the things that are made into movies that represent the behavior of a donkey, the behavior of a fool. And like, these are the appetites and pursuits of a foolish person. Christians are to have conversations that are substantive, not foolish, not graceless, but grace-filled, noble speech. Listen, If you're a person of nobility in days of old, your language reflected that nobility. Look, I know, I live in the culture you live in. It's easy to absorb the sounds, the vocabulary, and the words. And before you know it, you're saying things that aren't noble. It's the language of the culture. Morologia is the foolish speak of the culture. And then this third word, as it relates to moral integrity, no coarse jesting. Coarse jesting has to do specifically with innuendo, where you, it's an art form, it certainly was in ancient Greece, where you say one thing, but it has implications in a different category meant to prompt humor and to promote the idea that I'm smart. In our culture, we would call it sexual innuendo. 
where I say something that has implications in an immoral category. Verbal integrity says, I speak nobly. I don't do jokes that are off color. I don't cuss. And I don't speak foolishly. Why? Because I am a representative of God seeking to imitate God so the world can see who God is. Listen, it's not so that I'm better. It's so that they know he's better. That he can make them different. In my old life, periodically, I would play golf with guys from my church, and they would bring guys from their workplace, and we would tee off, and we would play around the golf, and I never told anybody who I was vocationally. I'm just Harry, friend of Sonny. Partway into the round, inevitably, well, so what, what do you do? Well, I'm a, I'm a pastor. Oh, dude, I am so sorry for my language. (laughs) You know, you've been there? Why? Because they expect that whatever that language was wouldn't be appropriate for a Christian. I'm not particularly offended if somebody does that, if they're not a Christian. I'm offended if they are a Christian and they do that. Unsaved people do what unsaved people do. I'm not saying I like it. I'm not saying it's easy on my ears. I'm just saying I get it. But what I don't get is a Christian. Because what this says is there must be, do you see these words? No. Do you know how many words, a word allowance you get for cussing, foolish talking, and innuendo? You know what your word allowance is? No, zero. Why? Because you're a Christian. Because you represent the gospel, because you're a worship offering. So there's a relational integrity that says, I've been loved and forgiven. I'm going to forgive in love. I'm not holding grudges. I'm not responding in kind. He didn't treat me that way. I'm not treating you that way. Hey, I have verbal integrity and moral integrity. Why? Because I'm a Christian. And I want to rightly represent the one I represent. And I love this. They are not, which are not fitting. It's not consistent is another way to say it. It's tantamount to saying, it doesn't belong there. It's not right. If Harry's a cusser, that's not right. If I'm telling off-color jokes, that's not right. If I'm talking nonsense, that's not right. If I'm looking at things I shouldn't look at, doing things I shouldn't do, if I'm infected and infatuated with things I don't have, that's not right. Matter of fact, verse 2 says it, it's, it's idolatrous. Or verse 3, rather. Verse 4 says, I rather ought to give thanks. I ought to be characterized by the worship that's grateful not characterized by what I don't have and my longing for it, but a noble gratitude that expresses itself in real time and in real life. So why? And he's going to punctuate this really strongly. 
because there's a propensity in Christianity to be deceived. Because there are people who say, because of the grace of Christ, which is bigger than my sin, I can live like the world lives. That's okay. Verse 5, for this you know with certainty. You see that? No doubt. This you know with certainty. This is to be a clarifying certain reality that is to motivate your commitment to biblical integrity, relational, moral, and verbal. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man, here it is, who is an idolater, that is a self-worshipper or a worshiper of something other than God, Gratification, however it comes, that becomes the means by which you pursue and prioritize your life. That person is an idolater, and that person does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You know why? Because the kingdom of Christ and God represents the kingdom, represents Christ and God. And if you're living in this way, immoral, verbally careless, relationally contradictory, you do not represent the kingdom of God. And verse 5 says, or verse 6 says, let no one deceive you with empty words. There's a whole bunch of preachers today, they focus on the, the hyper grace side. Listen, grace is big, it's lavish, it's abundant, it's greater than our sin. Aren't you glad? But it is not to be abused. It is to motivate us to be what that grace purchased us to be. Shall we continue in sin, Romans 6, that grace might abound? Because the more I sin, the greater the grace, the bigger the glory to God. That's not biblical. Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? God forbid. Meganoita. No way. That's not right. The grace wasn't lavished on us so that we can abuse it. The grace was lavished on us so that we can become what God saved us to become. Free from sin, not free to sin. Free to live holy. Let no one deceive you with these empty words, for because of these things, what things? The lack of verbal integrity, the lack of moral integrity, the lack of relational integrity. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Which is a way of saying, you're not in the kingdom, you're in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, you're in the kingdom of darkness. That's why 1 John says one of the test indicators of true true Christians is they don't practice sin. It's not a pattern of their life. I didn't say they didn't sin. We say we have no sin, we're a liar, the truth is not in us. Every Christian falls short, but they don't stay in that condition. And a true Christian, when confronted with that condition, addresses that reality. And what Paul is saying, don't think that you can be a Christian and live as a pattern of life in this way. Know for certain, this pattern of living, a lack of integrity verbally, morally, or relationally is indicative that you're a child of wrath and a child of disobedience, not a child of God 
and a child, child of his amazing grace. Verse 7, therefore do not be partakers with them. Stop it. Don't do it. Now notice he didn't say you don't ever do it. You just should stop doing it. Implication is you have done it. And I'm clarifying you can't do it. Verse 8, ground or reason, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness. That word's benevolence, kindness. Uprightness is right relationship, vertical and horizontal. You're doing right by people and you're doing right by God. Walk in the light. I think there's a fifth category of integrity, and that's light walking, walking in the light. It's doing right. It's being fair. It's being honest. It's being kind. It's being good. The third word is truth. The kingdom, the kingdom of God walking in the light consists of truth. Truth is moral truth, and it's intellectual truth. You traffic in what's true based on the Word of God, and you live consistently with the words of God. You're a truth trafficker, both by what you say, by what you think, and how you live. Live in the light. Hey, listen, here's good news. When you walk in integrity, you have fellowship with God. God is light. And those who, 1 John 1, those who walk with him, those who walk in the light, have fellowship with the Father, his Son, and the people of God. The word fellowship means intimacy, communion. I said this to a group of people the other day. If you love somebody relationally, it's not about what you're doing. It's just that you're doing it together. When you first fall in love... And if you're in a healthy marriage, it doesn't matter what date night is. It could be Chick-fil-A because you can't do much else. Drive through, in and out. doesn't really matter what you're doing. It's just that you're doing it together because there's communion in that. The one you love and the one who loves you is enjoying fellowship with you. The flavor of that is what God says, when you walk in the light, we have communion. You have communion with me, the Father. You have communion with my Son. You have communion through the Holy Spirit with the people of God. You have the richest relational treasure possible. Walk in the light as he is in the light. Do good. Be right, fair, and just in your relationships with people. Seek a win-win when you engage people in business. I grew up an American. American, you got to have a good deal. You can lose and I can win. That's not a biblical concept. Biblical concept is win-win, not win-lose. I sold a house to a guy from the Middle East, and he tried every tactic. And I realize that's probably politically incorrect, but he tried every sort of tactic to get a better deal. And I said to him, listen, you don't win if I don't win. And I don't win if you don't win. There's a number, it's a win-win. And if it's not a win-win, there's no deal. It's not me winning and you losing. It's not me losing and you winning. 
That's uprightness in the shoe leather as it relates to the kingdom of God. I'm doing what is right. I'm a light walker. And then this final statement, and we're at the end, is I'm a darkness exposer. I'm exposing darkness. I'm trying to learn, verse 10, what is pleasing to the Lord. That's what a light walker does. I'm constantly growing and learning and applying. Verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they're exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. Let me summarize 11 through 13. Biblical integrity means I love the light and I expose the darkness when I see it. As an act of love, recognizing that the darkness leads to death, and if light doesn't come, that person stays in the darkness. And when I illuminate the fact that they're in jeopardy because of the darkness, that illumination is light to them and preserving to them. I'm not to participate in those deeds. I'm not to get caught up in a descriptive communication of those deeds. Listen, I'm a pastor. I've been involved in a lot of conversations that I wish I hadn't been in because there's a soiling effect to the flesh and the carnality that sometimes we engage in. And what this verse says, love light, expose darkness, but don't get consumed in the dirt of the darkness and reveal the darkness so that it becomes light so that people benefit from what they can't see. This past week, a COVID party on the coast of England. One of the participants went out to the edge of the grounds where the party was held. There was a fence there, but no light there. She climbed over the fence, fell 250 feet to her death because she didn't know that on the other side of the fence was no land, only a cliff. Light for her would have preserved her life. Light for those around you, because they don't know what's on the other side, or the path that they're on, or the danger that is connected to it, demands, deserves the benefit of ones who know the light to turn the light of truth onto that darkness, to preserve, to prevent to retrieve, to recover, to restore, to prevent loss. And this whole section wraps up in verse 14 with this final exhortation, because all of that is true. The importance of integrity, light walking, darkness exposing. Verse 14, for this reason it says, awake sleeper, Arise from the dead, from the lethargy of that kind of Christianity, and Christ will shine on you. My final thought to you today in conclusion, because integrity matters to people and to God, because integrity is a representation of who I am and a representation of who He is, because of the value of His good name, because of the value of the truth we profess, we should wake up. Value what he values. 
and expose the world to a God who is and the good gospel grace that saves. And let Christ bless you as you wake up and you express the value of what God values for every Christian who has been saved by grace through faith. Can you say amen to that? Father, thank you for the time today. Thank you for your word today. Look, God, we're grateful for the grace that has saved us. We were sinners, chapter 2, doomed, depraved, disobedient, deluded, under the power of the God of this world and the power of our flesh, and you rescued us by grace. We're grateful for grace. And we need grace every day. As we, Colossians says, as we walk, as we've received the Lord, we're to walk in him. So we walk by faith and we walk by grace. So Lord, this isn't a call to Christian perfection. This is a call to Christian integrity, biblical integrity, biblical sanctification. And we do that by grace through faith. And we want to re-up on that because the world needs that. And we need that so that we can enjoy intimacy with you and rightly represent you. So give us grace to that end. Help us to be an encouragement to one another. Lord, if we uh, have behaviors, attitudes, and actions incongruous with who we are, help us to have courageous and helpful relationships that shape us and support us in our desire to honor you and to promote the gospel that saves. That's my prayer for us all. In Jesus' name, amen.